The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. This week on Deadline DC, uh, we'll first talk to uh, national security expert, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, about the Russian threat to Ukraine and Chinese intimidation of Taiwan. Then in the second half hour, our guest, uh, Edward Theogene, Advocacy Director of Generation Progress, and our own executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, talk about the threats uh, from the Supreme Court to abortion rights. Uh, but first, before we get to our first guest, uh, we'll ha- we have this clip from uh, President Biden about the Russian military presence on the Ukrainian border. What made you decide to take uh, U.S. ground combat troops off the table when it comes to Ukraine? They never were on the table. And are you ready to send American troops into war and go into Ukraine to fight Russians on their battlefield? Look, here's the deal. I've made it absolutely clear to President Putin. It's the last thing I'll say that if he moves on Ukraine, the economic consequences for his economy are going to be devastating. Devastating, number one. Number two, we will find it required that we'll have to send more American and NATO troops into the eastern flank, the B-9, all those NATO countries where we have a sacred obligation to defend them against any attack by Russia. And number three, The impact of all of that on Russia and its attitude, the rest of the world's view of Russia, would change markedly. He'll pay a terrible price. And uh, so it's uh, and we are going to continue to provide for and we have and continue to provide for the defense capacities for the Ukrainian people. Okay, that was President Biden talking about the Russian threat to the Ukraine. Our guest in this half hour is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, You may have seen him on CNN. He is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded the company after serving in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer and attaining the rank of colonel. His Twitter handle is Cedric Layton, that's C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N, and his website is the same, CedricLayton.com. 
Uh, Colonel Layton, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. How are you today? I'm doing well, Brad. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, let's start with basics first. Uh, the Russians have uh, amassed, I think I read somewhere, about 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border. Uh, and so my first question to you, is this all bluff on Putin's part, or is he getting ready for an invasion of the Ukraine? Well, that's a really interesting question, Brad, because it's bedeviled the intelligence community for months now. I, we don't know exactly what his intent is, but what I can say, you know, from my experience is that you have to take this very seriously. When you look at the types of preparations that Putin has engaged in, uh, you see not only the usual suspects like tanks and armored personnel carriers, missile systems, uh, communications vehicles, all of those kinds of military hardware uh, parked in in cantonment areas in places like Yelnya and several other locations not too far from the Ukrainian border. Uh, you have to believe that he's got something very serious in mind. Uh, you don't normally spend that much time, that much money, uh, that much fuel uh, and move that amount of troops uh, if you're not going to do anything with them. Uh, so, uh, you know, after a while, there's going to be a kind of a military imperative uh, that starts to roll. I think the most famous case of something like that was when uh, the uh, timetables for the trains made all the difference in the start of World War One. Uh, so, you know, move that forward to the present day. What you're looking at is the possibility uh, that Putin is going to use these troops to at least intimidate Ukraine, but quite possibly uh, take some more territory from Ukraine. If, uh, you know, I were in a policymaking position right now, I would be betting that he's going to try to take some territory and I would try to find ways against uh, those maneuvers. And that, that would be the way I would, I would handle it. So uh, I guess it's uh, we should point out that uh, Russia has already taken over uh, part of Ukrainian territory a few years ago when they invaded the Crimea. Uh, so mm -hmm. I guess it wouldn't be a big uh, leap uh, to do it again. Now, uh, my, that's right. Brad, and is, if short of an invasion, what would he want? You, why, why would he threaten Ukraine? What does he want the Ukraine to do that he that uh, he needs them to do? So one thing we have to keep in mind with Putin is that he looks at the world in kind of a historical uh, time frame. He, he looks at it, uh, you know, from the perspective of a former Soviet KGB officer, which he was. Uh, he believes that one of the biggest catastrophes was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, so in 2014, when he took over not only Crimea, but also uh, large portions of eastern Ukraine known as the Donbas uh, territory, uh, he was looking at, uh, you know, doing one thing, and that was to bring the Russian, ethnic Russian population that lives in those areas back into Russia. Uh, so that begins the process of reconstituting some of the territories that used to belong to the old Soviet Union, or before that to the Russian Empire, before the, the Communist Revolution in 1917. So what Putin is trying to do here, at least what his rhetoric tells us, is that he is looking at reconstituting 
that portion of the old Soviet Union slash Russian Empire that included Ukraine. Ukraine was not an independent country uh, until, well, for a brief period in the late uh, 19-teens, and uh, then, of course, uh, for the last 30 years uh, in the present day was is when it resumed its, its independent uh, existence. Uh, so Ukraine has historically been part of Russia, and from Putin's point of view, he believes that not only is Ukraine part of his so-called near abroad, but that Ukraine, for historical and cultural reasons, is also part of Russia. He does not recognize a separate Ukrainian nation, and so he wants to reclaim Ukraine for Russia and to do it in any way that he possibly can. You know, when you uh, said that uh, he view he wanted to, you know, uh, reclaim, you know, Russian population uh, that lived in Crimea, what I was thinking is uh, uh, Hitler trying to take over the Sudetenland, where, which was filled with ethnic Germans. Um, am I being too alarmist in making that comparison? Not at all. In fact, I've made that comparison myself uh, back in 2014 when he uh, started rolling uh, you know, with his so-called little green men into eastern Ukraine and Crimea. Uh, that was exactly the kind of rhetoric that Hitler used. Uh, Hitler was saying the, the Germans, uh, the ethnic Germans that lived in the Sudetenland needed to be uh, moved back into the German Empire. Heimensreich was the German uh, phrase for it. And uh, Putin is using very similar language. Uh, he is denigrating the cultural independence, uh, the cultural identity of Ukraine, much the same way that Hitler did when it came to Czech the old Czechoslovakia. Uh, and, you know, when you look at what is happening now in Ukraine and what the Russians are doing in regard to Ukraine, uh, you see very similar patterns of behavior. And that could be a very uh, key indicator of what uh, of what comes next, actually. Uh, we're talking with uh, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, about the uh, Russian threat to the Ukraine, uh, which uh, is sounds pretty serious to me. Uh, we're going to take a, a break and resume this discussion with uh, Cedric about uh, the Russian threat. Uh, and after the break, we're going to uh, move across the globe and talk about uh, the Chinese uh, threat against Taiwan. Uh, so we'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and more with our national security experts, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, after these messages. So don't go anywhere. We're taking a short break. Uh, but we'll be back right away. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, served in intelligence in the United States Air Force. Uh, by the way, if you want to watch Deadline DC as well as listen to it, uh, you can see us on at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. Uh, you can also view us on Facebook at tinyurl.com, BB Facebook Live, and finally on YouTube at tinyurl.com front slash Brad on YouTube. Uh, let's run across the globe, Cedric, and talk about China and Taiwan. 
as the Russians are making very aggressive overtures uh, to uh, the Ukraine. Uh, China is uh, at least uh, talking about uh, reclaiming Taiwan. Uh, I believe there have been a lot of uh, overflight, Chinese overflights over Taiwan. Uh, how big is the threat of the Chinese making a move to uh, take over Taiwan? I think, Brad, we have to take it extremely seriously. Uh, you know, this isn't the first time that uh, China has made a move against Taiwan uh, and threatened to take it over. Both countries, uh, you know, from the beginning of, of this situation, which is, you know, from the late 1940s, uh, they have basically said that they are the true representatives of China. Uh, you know, obviously, the People's Republic of China has has a lot more territory and a lot more people. Uh, so, you know, in terms of that, they would, uh, you know, have a, a claim, you know, to that, the title of being uh, the China that uh, that everybody looks to. Uh, but uh, the Taiwanese are, uh, you know, really, they, the government is a remnant of the old nationalist government that existed in all of China uh, before uh, 1948. And that is, you know, the histor brief historical background uh, the Chinese have done things as recently as 1996, uh, where they uh, made moves that indicated that they wanted to mount a military operation against Taiwan uh, and reintegrate it into uh, China itself. Now, the Chinese communists have never, ever controlled Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese nationalists obviously have. Uh, and before that, it was Japanese territory. Uh, and, uh, you know, and before, and before that, it was part of the empire of China. China. But uh, the the way that the Taiwanese and the Chinese are running their relationship right now, uh, the Chinese are very actively pursuing the idea of forcibly reintegrating uh, Taiwan into the Chinese uh, uh, body politic, into the Chinese mainland. And that uh, is something that they're looking at doing uh, in, in as efficient a way as possible. They would like to complete this, you know, possibly within the next five years. Years, maybe even sooner than that. Uh, and uh, the reality is, if they decided to invade and take over Taiwan, could we? Could the United States uh, stop it? It would be very difficult. Uh, we have in the past, in 1996, the last time this happened to a, a large degree, uh, the United States sent the Seventh Fleet uh, to go up and down the Taiwan Strait, uh, you know, the area, the body of water between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland, and that served uh, as a deterrent uh, to uh, the Chinese People's Liberation Army, uh, you know, from mounting that kind of an operation. Uh, today, there are many different ways that the Chinese can do it. First of all, their navy is more numerous than it was back then. In fact, they have more ships, more surface vessels than the U.S. does right now. Uh, they could also use cyber uh, as a means of infiltrating uh, the Taiwanese government. Uh, they have the capability of uh, wreaking havoc in that way. Uh, plus, they could do other things in a more asymmetric or unconventional way. Uh, so it would be very difficult to stop it uh, from a military technical standpoint. Standpoint, uh, it could potentially be done, but it would involve a large uh, effort, a large combat effort, a large military effort, and it would be extremely, extremely difficult to do. You know, it's it, you know, looking at this situation with China and Taiwan and Russia and Ukraine, uh, it just seems to me that you know, are economic sanctions enough? Uh, is world opinion enough to stop either of these two efforts? 
Probably not. Uh, and, you know, the reason I say that, Brad, is because, uh, you know, when you look at uh, the Chinese situation, first and foremost, it's part of a uh, strategy that uh, the People's Republic has enunciated really since its founding. So, you know, you're talking over 70 years ago uh, where they actually came out with very uh, clear guidance that they wanted to reintegrate that piece of, of land. Uh, and they're going to do it one way or the other is their, their basic view. And now that China is far more powerful uh, than it has ever been uh, in, in at any time in its history, uh, that will also make a, a big, big difference and, uh, you know, will really make them far less willing to follow sanctions or any other course of diplomatic measures that we may have in, in place at this at this point or at some point in the future. When it comes to Russia and Ukraine, uh, some similar things apply there. Uh, you know, what you're looking at there is a country in, in Russia that is uh, certainly more vulnerable uh, to sanctions and diplomatic pressure than China would be. However, um, they are also looking at the possibility of going it alone for a brief period, a brief enough period, uh, surviving the sanctions just like they did in 2014 when they took over uh, eastern Ukraine and the Crimea. Uh, but uh, they will, you know, eventually they figured the West will tire of any sanctions. They will want to do business with Russia because uh, the Germans need the natural gas. Uh, the other Europeans want to, uh, you know, grab a hold of some other Russian resources and uh, so the Russians believe that they will probably uh, prevail in something like this uh, as long as we don't uh, move into Ukraine militarily. Uh, they believe that they can not only uh, have the upper hand, uh, but they will evade the sanctions as much as they can. Uh, they will overcome the sanctions as much as they can, and then they will be able to uh, withstand any sanctions uh, and will will uh, allow that uh, to kind of disappear and uh, will forget that Ukraine uh, was in an independent country. That's their hope. That's their bet. How do you think the Biden administration would respond would respond if uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine militarily and sent the troops to hundred thousand? I think yeah, what, we would, what we would do is right. What we would do, I think, at, at this point is you know we'd certainly put more troops into uh, the NATO eastern flanks of countries like Poland or like the Baltic states. Uh, Slovakia, uh, Romania, countries like that would see an increase in U.S. troop presence. Um, there would certainly be a lot of effort uh, to sanction the Russians. Uh, they would probably cut the Russians off from the banking system, from the SWIFT banking system for international transactions. So it would be painful for the Russians, uh, but it is something uh, that, uh, you know, we would have to see, you know, what their calculus is if they do that. Okay. Uh, I want to thank our guest to this half hour, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, I always think that we probably should spend more time talking about national security efforts. It seems to me all we've talked a lot about in, on the show, uh, the economy and the COVID epidemic. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, Joe Biden may be facing two very serious problem, uh, foreign policy problems. Uh, they're going to occupy his attention as much as the uh, uh, COVID and the economy. Uh, Colonel Layton, thanks. Uh, we're going to break now. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC uh, right after these messages. So thank you and don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. 
This half hour of Deadline DC is brought to you by my company, Bannon Communications Research, which polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Uh, before we get to the provocative progressive political panel, we're going to play this clip uh, from Justice Sotomayor, uh, who was commenting on the court's deliberations over the Mississippi uh, abortion law that uh, prohibits abortions after 15 weeks of a pregnancy. When does the life of a woman and putting her at risk enter the calculus? Meaning, right now, forcing women who are poor, and that's 75% of the population, and much higher percentage of those women in Mississippi who elect abortions before viability, they are put at a tremendously greater risk of medical complications and ending their life. 14 times greater to give birth to a child full term than it is to have an abortion before viability. And now the state is saying to these women, we can choose not only to physically complicate your existence, put you at medical risk, make you poorer by the choice, because we believe what? Now, um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said, we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? That is Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, who is commenting on during the uh, Supreme Court uh, oral arguments on the Mississippi abortion law. The stakes in next year's midterm elections were already pretty high, but they got even bigger last week. The conservative majority on the United States Supreme Court indicated it was ready to reverse the landmark Roe v. Wade decision that protects the right to choose. Roe's reversal would mean Democratic governors would need to be the last line in defense in the battle to protect abortion rights. Uh, if the high court does reverse Roe, abortion rights in about 20 states, mainly in the South and Mountain West, will be under siege. The nullification would effectively end abortions in these states. Then the only way for women to end unwanted pregnancies would be to travel for hundreds of miles. The crisis would add undue burdens on the health and well-being of millions of women, the burden that Roe was meant to eliminate. You can read this column and all my columns in the Hill at muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon. Now it's time for the provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Edward Theogene, Advocacy Director of Generation Progress. Uh, Edward, uh, it, Generation Progress is the youth engagement arm of American Progress. 
In this role, Ed With leads efforts to translate the experiences of young adults uh, into concrete actions that advance progressive policies and increase voter turnout. Joining Ed With on the panel is our own executive producer, Mark Romaldi. Mark has worked for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. He is active in campaign finance reform and efforts to promote cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. That's Mark J. G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I. Edwith's uh, Twitter handle is who is Edwith, uh, who is E-D-W-I-T-H. Uh, welcome to the panel. Okay, let's start this with uh, Edwith. Uh, do you think the Supreme Court is going to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade and leave it up to the states to decide whether or not women have the right to abortions? I mean, it's hard to tell right now. I just know from the start of oral arguments, from the remarks of other justices um, on the court, that it did not sound good. We have one justice asking why folks aren't relying on um, adoption as an option, completely ignoring the fact that someone would have to go to pregnant, go through pregnancy to get to a point of adoption, which implicates potential medical risk and also different economic complications from there. Um, we have other folks just toying around and asking questions that lead us to assume that they would gut row. Um, so it, it, it seems and feels very bleak. Um, but I will just say on a positive note that there are other ways that we can save Roe and protect Roe. Roe has always been the floor, not the ceiling of having access to abortion. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into what some of those solutions could look like. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk about, let me ask Mark. Mark, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think the uh, court, five during the oral arguments, part of which we just listened to, uh, Five of the justices, uh, which is all it needs, which is the majority, uh, indicated a willingness that it's time to uh, nullify Roe. Do you think that's going to happen, Mark? I mean, based on how things are sounding, I would agree with Edwith that it's sounding bleak at this point. I mean, it's hard to know for sure. But, I mean, let's not pull any punches. This was one of the reasons that Mitch McConnell stole a Supreme Court court seat from uh, President Obama when he nominated Merrick Garland fairly, um, you know, nearly a year before the election. And then, you know, just a few weeks that was, excuse me, that was before the, the 2016 election. And then just a few weeks before the 2020 election, um, we had the um, very sad passing of Justice Ginsburg, you know, a true hero uh, to all Americans. And, instead of letting the next president seat the Supreme Court justice of that vacant seat, you had uh, Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans and former President Trump uh, fill that seat with uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Barrett, who, you know, has basically said, you know, that she intends to, or she wouldn't answer once she was on, you know, being, uh, having her, her hearings done. But she previously indicated that she would overturn Roe v. Wade and so did um, uh, uh, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, thank you. And, 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 and don't forget you had people like 
Senator Susan Collins saying, oh, I wouldn't, you know, vote for Justice Kavanaugh if he would uh, overturn Roe v. Wade. You know, all these people are disingenuous. I'm sorry, these Senate Republicans. And they have, you know, very thinly veiled intentions. And I don't believe for, for one minute the thing's coming out of their mouth. So I think that is the intention. And I think that's why people who believe in this fundamental right um, need to make their voices heard now. And, you know, we have to fight for what we believe in, no matter how bleak things may seem at times, because, you know, it can make a difference. Okay. Uh, well, Edwith, let's follow up on uh, the point you made. Uh, the Supreme Court is probably not going to issue a ruling, probably until, you know, next fall or uh, summer. I don't really know. Uh, what can, uh, what can, uh, uh, people who believe in the woman's right to choose do to stop the Supreme Court, or is there anything they can do to stop the Supreme Court? Uh, before I jump into that, just like piggybacking off of some of Mark's comments and also the comments of Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, um, this for years, the opposition, Republicans, conservatives have been packing the courts up and down, lower courts. They pack the Supreme Court. They're the ones who have been pushing this agenda and getting ready for this particular moment. Um, and the courts is supposed to be objective, right? Like this is an institution that's supposed to be impartial, that's supposed to uh, rule in favor of what justice is. And right now, I think what we see playing out, this, these theatrics right now of them trying to be impartial when they're really not impartial, really, really questions like years of precedent from the court and really questions the institution as a whole. So in terms of like an answer of what can people do, I'm not looking towards the courts for answers. Right now I'm looking towards Congress. There is the Women's Health Protection Act, which is a bill that would protect access to abortion by protecting um, medical providers, um, abortion providers to provide the care that they need to people. And I'm also looking towards on the ground grassroots groups who are providing um, resources and support for people to get abortions. Okay. Uh, we're going to go to break now, but we uh, come back uh, to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We'll have more of the provocative progressive political panel uh, with Edward Theogene from Generation Progress and our own executive producer, uh, Mark Romaldi. Uh, we're going to continue this discussion about the uh, Supreme Court's threat to abortion rights. Uh, and also jump into a couple other topics if we have time. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome back to Deadline Brad Bannon, our provocative progressive political panel. Our guest on the panel today, our good friend, is our good friend, Edwith Theogene, the advocacy director at Generation Progress. And also joining us on the panel is our own executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, let me change topics here. Uh, today, Time Magazine announced that Ellen, Elon Musk was the Time Magazine uh, Person of the Year. 
And basically, uh, they said that uh, he is largely responsible more than any other single human being uh, for the growth of the electric car industry. Uh, which would provide uh, immense benefits uh, to the environment. Um, I believe I read something that uh, that more than half of the electric cars on the roads today in the United States uh, were produced by uh, Musk Company. And today, incidentally, the Biden administration announced an initiative uh, to uh, create 50,000 new electric car charging stations across the United States. So let's start with you, Edwith. Uh, what do you think of the choice of uh, Elon Musk? I think that's pretty interesting. Um, I am part of the George Jetson generation. I thought we would have flying cars by now, um, but it looks like we're getting closer with the electric car. Um, I know that the government is also supporting folks getting electric cars by providing like tax credits and stuff. And we're all trying to move to a place uh, using energy wisely. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little torn that he was time person of the year. Um, but I understand, I guess, the calculus for it. But maybe there are other people that would be better suited. OK, you have any ideas of who would be better suited than Musk? Um, let's see. Let me think about it. Mark, okay. do you have a thought? We'll ask Mark <laughs> and give you a, a chance to think about it. Mark, uh, yeah. what do you think of the choice? I think it's, you know, I, the work that he's done to um, help make this, you know, possible as far as the electric car industry um, moving along a lot quicker is really important for the planet um, and for moving our en energy industry forward. Um, that said, you know, he's done a lot of union busting. He's, you know, cast dispersions on the effectiveness of the COVID vaccine at times. And just, you know, not been exactly, he's been busted by the Securities and Exchange Commission in 2018. Um, you know, he's he's definitely not, you know, the perfect person, I would say. Um, that said, I don't think you can completely discount the work that he's done either. Um, so I don't think it's the worst choice. Uh, that said, I, to me, I thought it would be a clear choice to pick, um, the four, uh, American heroes that, um, time actually chose as their quote unquote, 2021 heroes of the year. Um, and those are the four, uh, uh P Americans who were responsible for creating the MRNA technology that was used to make the COVID-19 vaccine for um, Pfizer and Moderna. Um, not only that, uh, it's going to be used for many other vaccines in the future, potentially to um, help protect people against even AIDS and cancer. Um, so it's going to greatly affect people's health uh, in a major positive way going forward and help to thwart the spread of COVID-19, not just now, but you can very quickly adjust these vaccines for new variants because of the technology of this mRNA vaccine, like the, the Omicron variant. Um, their names are, and I apologize if I mispronounce this, um, doctors Kismekia Corbett, Barney Graham, Caitlin uh, Carrico and Drew Weissman. There's actually a great write-up on them uh, in Time or on Time.com for free um, under it's entitled Vaccine Scientists Are Time's 2021 Heroes of the Year. Uh, just think about 
um, you know, how bad this pandemic has been, but then also how much worse it would be if we didn't have access to these life-saving vaccines. Um, it would, you know, unfortunately we are seeing that in other parts of the world where there is not um, as much equality, uh, nearly as much equality and access to these vaccines. Um, and honestly, that's a whole nother issue that there's no excuses for. Um, the, the richer part of the world, including the United States, needs to do more to make these available in all parts of the world. Otherwise, you're also going to see how it's affected in places like South Africa, where there's not enough access to vaccines and you have new variants spread and come back around the world. So um, that said, these these are incredible vaccines, saved you know countless amounts of lives. And I think these four would have been a terrific choice for the person of the year. And, and they plenty of times they pick more than one person or a group of people. Last year it was uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris. So it's not like you have to go that far back to see an example of that. Okay. Uh, well, Mark has his own pet peeve with Musk. I'll share mine. Uh, that man who's made all this incredible money uh, and went to space uh, didn't pay a cent in uh, federal taxes uh, last year, which, exactly. you know, is, I think, uh, uh, a sad commentary on our progressive, on our lack of a progressive tax system. Hopefully, something build back better will uh, deal with. Uh, uh, Edwith, uh, do you want to uh, nominate someone for Theogene Person of the Year, mm -hmm. or do you want to move on to the next topic? I'll move on. I mean, I'm in agreement with Mark about those folks. I also think that, like, I've just been thinking about all the different fights that advocates in the reproductive rights space have been going through and like abortion funds, which are the folks who are on the ground raising money in their communities to help people travel to get the care that they need, who are babysitting, driving people, housing people, raising money. Like I would nominate them. You know, um, they're just there's a national network of abortion funds and there's smaller abortion funds and they're doing such monumental work. And they're basically going to have to like level up a lot of their work in the coming months in this coming year and moving forward. So I guess I would, I would nominate them. Okay. Okay. Next topic. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, congressional house committee that's investigating the, uh, uh, capital coup on January 6th is working. Uh, there are revelations that are coming out. Uh, all sorts of document and paperwork. Um, the latest shows that the White House chief of staff, the last one under Trump, Mark Meadows, uh, had uh, thought about using the National Guard uh, to protect pro-Trump supporters uh, during the interaction. Uh, and I suspect there are going to be all sorts of, uh, you know, re you know, revelations like that. Um, uh, Steve Bannon, who, by the way, I'm not related to, um, has been, uh, indicted for refusing for contempt of Congress for refusing to testify before the committee. Uh, the aforementioned Mark Meadows may go the same way since he's refused to testify, uh, to the committee, uh, after agreeing to talk to them. Um, but Bannon's trial won't be till next fall sometime, so it'll be a while before anything comes of that. Uh, my question, Ed, with, do you think uh, anything significant is um, from the uh, January 6th hearings are going to come out uh, that would serve as preven uh, preventation uh, uh, 
to prevent something similar to that happening um, down the road? Or is this thing just going to get brushed over as time goes by and we move on to other issues? I think it's going to get brushed over as time goes by. I mean, I followed earlier on when the hearings came out and to hear the folks who were there, their testimonies was really jarring and emotional. Um, So I hope something does happen. There needs to be even more levels of accountability. Um, And I think that we need to put something in place to prevent something like this from happening. But I know that Congress, the government has a short attention span and there are tons of different priorities that are also at play, too. So I understand the stretch, but my hope is that something really good can happen um, to hold these folks accountable. The same people who did the insurrection and led the insurrection and gassed that up are the same people who are standing in the way of us uh, protecting our democracy with the Freedom to Vote Act. They're the same people who are taking away our reproductive rights. So I don't think we should let them just get off just like that. Okay. Uh, Mark, do you think anything significant like prosecution for insurrection will come from the uh, January 11th committee uh, hearings? I think the January 6th committee hearings. I actually do think that there is still um, there is still possibility of that. If you listen to those who have talked about the evidence that hasn't been released yet or spoken about yet, and you, you saw the referral um, for in the, in the arrest of Steve Bannon, I think it's possible that others who will not cooperate with the committee could be arrested and put on trial as well. But the key issue is going to be time and how long does that take and you know when can we see events moving forward to a resolution. Okay, uh, that's it for Deadline DC today. I want to thank our guest, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, Edward Theogene, Advocacy Director of Generation Progress, uh, and our own uh, producer and political activist, Mark Gamaldi. Be safe and be strong in these troubling, turbulent times, and make sure you watch Deadline DC every Monday.